Society builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day. A united approach to building a new society. Join a conversation, a social transformation. Society builders. Ooh. Society builders, with your host Dwayne Veron. Welcome to Society Builders. In our last episode, we discussed the origins of this podcast series, how it was conceived in response to a message of the Universal House of Justice, providing a singular aim and focus for the Baha'i community for the next 25 years. And that focus is this, the release of the society building power of the faith in ever greater measures. We discussed how for a Baha'i, this guidance is seminal. And in these next two episodes, I'd like to explain what I mean by that. Why do I use the word seminal? Why is this kind of guidance so important for a Baha'i? And how does it define our path of service for what, for many of us, will effectively be the rest of our lives? So today's journey is all about vision and the art of translating vision into reality. It's about understanding how the kind of vision articulated by the Universal House of Justice gets translated into action and ultimately into fruition. Today's episode has important life lessons for all of us, lessons for our daily lives, in our career, in our life aspirations, but it also has important lessons for us in our collective community lives. There are important ideas in this and in the next episode that will truly transform your lives. Trust me, there are tools that you'll discover in these episodes that you'll carry with you for the rest of your lives. And I know what I'm talking about here because these are tools that have transformed my life. It's truly transformative in character. It really makes a difference. So fasten your seatbelts if it's gonna be an exciting ride. Now, as I alluded to earlier, we're going to tackle today's theme across two episodes. So part one, this episode, is about mastering the art of bringing vision to fruition. But we explore this largely at the individual level, at a personal level, how you can work to bring vision to fruition in your life. In our next episode, we expand our circle and explore how we can do this collectively as communities. And in that context, we'll finally loop around back to this guidance from the Universal House of Justice to explore how that guidance ultimately shapes our approach to society building. So you'll have to accompany me for a bit of a journey to get to that ultimate destination. And so we start in this episode with the art of bringing vision into fruition, part one of our History of Tomorrow theme. We start this episode then with a story almost every Baha'i has heard. In the early 1900s, the nascent Baha'i community of Chicago aspired to build a temple, a house of worship, a mashallah's car. 
but not just any old temple. They wanted one that would be monumental in scale. Now, this was a dream that was entirely beyond their financial means. It would have been easy to discount their ambition as a mere aspiration, or if you were being cruel, as some kind of fantasy. Eventually, the entire American Baha'i community joined in their dream, but even that community was still relatively small at the time, and this dream was well beyond even their collective means. A pragmatic voice at the time would have toned down the vision to a scale within their means, but they continued to dream big. They wanted the temple to have monumental scale. Now, although they couldn't afford to build the temple, they did manage to buy land and to get started on a design. So when Abdu'l-Bahá visited Chicago in 1912, they decided that this would be the perfect occasion for the breaking of the ground and the laying of the foundation stone in a big celebration and ceremony. A local believer, Miss Nettie Tobin, contributed the cornerstone, a stone that was actually rejected from another building site, and she wheeled it to the site and will met in a baby carriage. That was a story in itself, as was the drama in digging the hole in the hard ground to place the cornerstone in. But as Abdu'l-Bahá placed the stone to dedicate the future temple, he shared this amazing insight to the 300 or so believers that assembled. He said, the temple is already built. The temple is already built. At that moment, the Baha'i community set in motion a path to fruition. From that point forward, you knew the temple would be built. You didn't know how, you didn't know when or how long it would take, or what sacrifices would be made along the way, but you could act with absolute confidence that the temple would be built, even if it took over 40 years, it has actually happened, for the community to actually build it. At that moment, with the laying over the cornerstone by Abdu'l-Bahá, you could have written the history books. You could have absolute confidence that it would be built. You could write the history of tomorrow. And in that insight lays a profound articulation of a sacred Baha'i principle, entirely unique to our faith, a very specific perspective on translating vision into reality, a capacity to see the end in the beginning. It's an art, it's a faculty, it's a skill. And this ability to see the end in the beginning and make it so is the focus of our conversation today. I'm calling this episode A History of Tomorrow because what I mean by this is the idea that when you bring together critical ingredients, vision, faith, determination, action, you set in motion forces that bring vision into fruition. And at that point, you can write the history of tomorrow, confident it will be so. And so when the Universal House of Justice calls for the release of the society building powers of the faith in ever greater measures, you can be confident that this will happen and that great, great things will consequently ensue along the way. You can write the history of tomorrow today.
Today's episode draws on a talk I gave at the Blue Bonnet Baha'i Conference in Austin, Texas, a few years ago. And as I was preparing that talk, I discovered something which was truly exhilarating for me on a personal level. I discovered a virtue. Let me share the background here with you. Most sacred scriptures have this idea that we are created in the image of God. Now, what does that mean? Some take that literally, and they believe that this means that God has physical form. Eyes, a nose, a long beard, perhaps. They picture God in human form, like an old man sitting at the top of the mountain commanding the forces of the universe. But I believe that what this means is that we are created with the capacity to develop and cultivate God's qualities, his divine virtues. This is one way in which we understand God, by his qualities, love, patience, mercy, justice, and so on. So in cultivating these virtues, we gradually discover more and more of God. Now, it's not the only path to knowing and understanding our creator, but it's an important part of our journey. As Baha'is, we talk about virtues in almost everything we do. Our daily prayers remind us of these virtues as we recognize the qualities of our creator. We have children's classes where we teach our children virtues. We walk in continual awareness of the critical role of cultivating these virtues in our lives. Okay, so my talk at the conference included a discussion of this process of translating vision into reality. And as I was preparing my talk, I was searching for the right word to describe this idea, this idea of bringing vision to fruition. Now, it turns out, surprisingly, it's incredibly hard to find the right word. We just don't have a word in English that properly articulates this idea. We don't have a word for this idea of bringing vision to fruition. But as I struggled to find the right word, I came close. I eventually discovered a word. And the word is fashioning. Now, I don't mean fashion like the latest trend in clothing. I mean fashioning like God fashions the universe. He articulates a vision, and little by little, that vision unfolds. So, for example, we have a prayer which Baha'u'llah revealed. We, we think of this as a prayer of praise and gratitude. And in this prayer, Baha'u'llah says... Thou didst wish to make thyself known unto men, therefore thou didst, through a word of thy mouth, bring creation into being and fashion the universe. I'm going to say that again. Thou didst wish to make thyself known unto men, therefore thou didst, through a word of thy mouth, bring creation into being and fashion the universe. So the unfoldment of the universe unveils itself with God's uttering of a single word, setting in motions that fashion the universe over time to that vision. And we even know what that word is. And the word is be. The word be. We see this in the long obligatory prayer where Baha'u'llah says, he hath been manifested in the hidden mystery, the treasured symbol through whom the letters B and E have been joined and knit 
together. So we even know the word is God's command, be. Now, whether this is metaphorical or not, my point in sharing it today is that it expresses that one of the ways we understand God is as fashioner of the universe. And it's a process that is set in motion from the articulation of the vision and onwards in a dynamic process that evolves to that vision. It's similar to the great drama Baha'u'llah tells us that is playing out following his tablet to the kings and rulers of the earth with the rolling up of the old world order and the rolling out of a new one. So this is fashioning. This is why my moment of discovery in preparing my talk was so exciting for me on a personal level because I had discovered a new virtue, this capacity to have a vision and translate it into the world of being. That is a virtue. I'd never thought of it that way before. I was never taught it as a virtue. And so I felt like running down the hall shouting, Eureka, Eureka, like I had discovered a new element in science. I had discovered a virtue. Now, I'm probably not the first person to discover this, but for me, it was a discovery because no one ever framed fashioning as a virtue for me. So it was a discovery for me on a personal level, hence my excitement. And I hope that now that you understand this idea of fashioning as a virtue, that it will be empowering for you as well. Now, fashioning is an incredibly powerful virtue. What is the one thing above all that defines and characterizes a successful CEO? It's this capacity to fashion, to translate vision into reality. This is probably the single most important trait for any captain of industry. It's what we admire most, for example, about Steve Jobs and his leadership at Apple. Stocks rise and fall on the ability to deliver on vision. And it's a virtue that can help us in our personal lives, this ability to look beyond the horizon and rise to transcend ourselves and make great things happen. Wow. How exciting to suddenly realize that this art of translating vision into reality is a virtue. But it doesn't happen just because we articulate a vision. There is an art to bringing vision into fruition. It's a skill, and there are ingredients that are critical to making it happen. Abdu'l-Bahá, for example, gives us three of these key ingredients. He says, the attainment of any object is conditioned upon knowledge, volition, and action. Unless these three conditions are forthcoming, there is no execution or accomplishment. So let's reflect. Knowledge, knowing something. Volition, having faith, confidence, sheer willpower to make it happen. And of course, action. So we have to do our homework to understand the problem, muster the will and faith to make it happen, and then act to make it so. Shoghi Effendi gives us further guidance on this. Now these are pilgrim notes, not actual scripture, but it's what we refer to as the five dynamics of prayer, 
a recipe for how to pray for change in our lives. Spoiler alert, this quote is the essence of today's episode. It's not just helpful in understanding prayer, it's the key to understanding the art of fashioning. So it's the focus of the rest of today's episode. So Shoghi Fendi tells us that when we have a problem and we pray for assistance, we should go through these five steps. First step, pray and meditate about it. Use the prayers of the manifestations as they have the greatest power. Then remain in the silence of contemplation for a few minutes. Second step, arrive at a decision and hold this. This decision is usually born during the contemplation. It may seem almost impossible of accomplishment, but if it seems to be as answer to a prayer or a way of solving the problem, then immediately take the next step. Third step, have determination to carry the decision through. Many fail here. The decision butting into determination is blighted and instead becomes a wish or a vague longing. When determination is born, immediately take the next step. Fourth step, have faith and confidence that the power will flow through you. The right way will appear, the door will open, the right thought, the right message, the right principle, or the right book will be given you. Have confidence, and the right thing will come to your need. Then, as you rise from prayer, take at once the fifth step. Fifth step. Then he said lastly, act. Act as though it had all been answered. Then act with tireless, ceaseless energy. And as you act, you yourself will become a magnet, which will attract more power to your being until you become an unobstructed channel for the divine power to flow through you. Many pray, but do not remain for the last half of the first step. Some who meditate arrive at a decision, but fail to hold to it. Few have the determination to carry the decision through. Still fewer have the confidence that the right thing will come to their need. But how many remember to act as though it had all been answered? How true are these words? Greater than the prayer is the spirit in which it is uttered, and greater than the way it is uttered is the spirit in which it is carried out. Wow. In this guidance is the key to this art of translating vision into fruition. Most people think that praying is just asking God for something. But this quote helps us understand that asking is just the first part of a process that is ultimately expressed in action. Praying is not just about asking God for something. It's about arriving at a decision, having confidence that it's the right decision, having faith that the right tools will come your way, and being ready to seize those resources when you encounter them, and acting tirelessly to make it happen. All of that is praying. It's everything from the prayer to the articulation of a vision or a decision to having faith to the arena of action. In fact, the action itself is an integral part of the prayer. Wow. In my own life experience, I have found this guidance to be pure gold, absolute magic. And these same five steps in prayers are also amazing tools to help us translate vision into reality. 
Now I'm going to focus on three key features of this guidance here. First, arriving at a decision. Second, cultivating faith. And finally, being open to solutions arriving in ways you can't anticipate. All of these are critical to effective fashioning. So let's start with arriving at a decision. As a general rule, people tend to be reactive and largely passive in making decisions in their lives. We normally allow others to decide for us. Your boss, your teacher, your significant other, we react and respond to the decisions of others. In fact, it's easier for us to make decisions about what other people should do than it is to make them for ourselves. It turns out it's hard work making decisions for ourselves. So it's generally hard for us to encounter life's challenges and actually make a decision. We fear making the wrong decision. And so we're weighed down by our problems. We're weighed down because we can't decide how to best move forward. Of course, we make decisions every day, lots of them, but we tend to make them only when we absolutely have to, when there's a forcing function demanding a decision. And that's why I say that we're largely reactive rather than proactive in life. The beloved guardian's advice takes us past this. It allows us to move in life with clarity, with focus, with purpose. It liberates us from indecision. Decide. And if it turns out that our decision is not the best decision, we can learn, adapt, and make new decisions. But being freed from indecision is truly liberating and empowering. So try this next time you're weighed down. Pray about your problem, make a decision, and trust that it's the right decision, even if you can't foresee how it will all come together, and act as if your prayer has been answered. Give it a go, and then afterwards, evaluate the approach. Trust me, you're going to be amazed at just how powerful this approach is. Okay, so you've prayed, you've meditated, you weighed up the facts, you arrived at the decision. Now comes the hardest part, having faith. Faith is something you have to exercise, develop, and cultivate. Abdu'l-Baha tells us, to the extent that ye have faith, so shall your powers and blessings be. So let's explore this quality of faith. You know, there's this story about these Native Americans, um, Navajos, Hopi perhaps, who were suffering the consequences of an endless drought. Their lands were parched and dying. They were facing disaster and ruin. And in their desperation, they kept doing their rain dance, beseeching God to provide them with rain. But no matter how hard they prayed and danced, no rain resulted. And in that moment of desperation, many of them felt abandoned by their great creator. Why didn't he answer their prayers? So they came together to consult about this, struggling to find a wisdom. Why was there no rain? And it was a little girl who solved the mystery. She stood up and proclaimed, I know why. It's because we didn't bring our umbrellas to our rain dance. We didn't bring our umbrellas. This is faith. If they had true faith, they would have brought their umbrellas fully confident that it would rain. 
Faith requires that we detach ourselves from self-doubt and remain focused on the task at hand, that we cling to that vision, confident that even though we don't know how, we will ultimately prevail. This reminds me of another story. There was a man walking in the middle of the night, and he couldn't see where he was walking. Suddenly, without realizing it, he walked right off the face of a cliff. As he was falling to his death below, he reached out for dear life, trying to grab anything he could to save himself. By some miracle, he managed to grab onto a branch, and with all the power he could muster, he held onto that branch for dear life. But his arms grew weary, and he knew that he couldn't hold on forever. In absolute desperation, he shouted out into the heavens, begging God to help him. Suddenly, the heavens were cleft asunder, and a deep voice came thundering from the heavens above. I imagine this was a voice much like the voice of James Earl Jones. <laughs> and the voice said, Let go. Let go. The man thought about it, and he yelled out his response. Is there anybody else up there? <laughs> now, he didn't particularly like this advice, so he continued clinging to the branch. With great pain, I might add, he was exhausted. Every muscle in his body ached, and his life flashed before his eyes. But as the first glimmers of light associated with the dawn came, he could suddenly start to see the contours of the landscape around him. And it was at that point that he realized that he was just one foot above the ground. So there was a wisdom in the guidance that God was giving him, which he couldn't see, but which he needed to rely on his faith to believe. And we all encounter this challenge in our lives, to trust our inner voice, to trust the guidance we receive. Now, cultivating faith is a big topic. It's truly the essence of what religion is all about. And there are many ways that we develop and exercise our faith. Prayer, fasting, living the Baha'i life, contributing to the fund, making sacrifices in the path of service, sharing our faith with others, all of these are part of our path in cultivating faith. And so is developing the capacity to see the end in the beginning, a theme we'll return to in our next episode. But in terms of vision, just remember that faith is something we have to work actively to exercise, develop, and cultivate. And once again, as Abdu'l-Bahá reminds us, as ye have faith, so shall your powers and blessings be. Okay, the third and final feature of the five dynamics of prayer that I wanted to talk about was this idea of making a decision not knowing how you're going to pull it off. At the time, it might even seem impossible. The Guardian tells us that as we have faith, the right resources will come to our aid, and we have to be prepared to seize that aid when it comes. We have to be searching for it, open to it, and then we have to seize it when the opportunity presents. This reminds me of another story. There was a flood, and the waters were rising. A man prays to God for help, and soon a rescue team shows up at his doorstep, eager to take him to safety. But he doesn't need their help. God will provide so he rejects their assistance. The waters continue to rise. Pretty soon he's on the second floor balcony and a boat pulls up with rescuers eager to save him. But he again turns down their advice. God will provide. 
Finally, he's standing at the highest point of his roof with the water continuing to rise. He's up to his neck in the floodwaters and a helicopter flies above with rescuers sent there to save him. But again, he rejects their help. After all, God will provide. And that's right, you guessed it, the waters rise and the mound drowns and he goes to heaven. And in heaven, he meets his maker and laments, God, how could you abandon me? I prayed, but you ignored my prayer. And God said, what are you talking about? Three times I sent you help. Why didn't you accept? So the moral of my story is that we have to be open to the resources we need coming in ways that we can't predict, coming to our aid. Now, this is entirely different from your typical corporate plan. A corporate plan lays out the sequence of events, knowing the resources they'll marshal to the task. A will be followed by B. Everything is laid out in meticulous detail. With the Baha'i approach, you don't know how you're going to get from point A to point B. You turn up for the voyage, confident that the right resources will fall in place. And as they do, you have to seize the narrow window of opportunities that present. This is how revolutions are usually fueled. In contrast to the corporate plan, where every detail is meticulously laid out, the revolutionary lacks resources and has no clue how they'll prevail. They're constantly on the lookout for the opportunity that might advance their cause. A landlord kills their worker or some other mishap like that happens, and they immediately mobilize to seize the momentum. Maybe their response catches the public imagination. Maybe it doesn't. But they continue in their quest for opportunities, marshalling resources to respond to the opportunities that present. The problem with the corporate approach is that you're blind to opportunity. This is most dramatically visible when an industry encounters disruptive technologies. For example, you're a Swiss watchmaker. Collectively, you own the watch market globally. Someone invents a digital watch and comes and pitches it to you, but this doesn't fit in your planning cycle. You don't need this, so you discount it and you turn them away. Instead, they go to someone with no experience in watches, like a Seiko. And next thing you know, almost all watches are being sold by the Seikos of the world, with only few still being made by the Swiss. Or it's like your Sony, and you make this device called the Walkman, which dominates portable music. A company like Apple approaches you with this idea of digital music. What do they know? They're computer people. We're Sony. We own music. But a few years later, all music is digital, and the Walkman is obsolete. And we could go on and on. This is a classic story. And it's true with the faith as well. I remember traveling behind the Iron Curtain back in 1989, deep in Russia. And I was there when the Berlin Wall came down and you were allowed to share the faith in public for the first time. Now, I've never seen a people more hungry for the faith. You could hold a pamphlet up offering it and you'd get mobbed by a crowd of people desperate for it. That's a window of opportunity. People in Russia wouldn't always be that hungry, but when they are, we need to respond to that opportunity. We didn't foresee the crumbling of the Berlin Wall, so none of us were truly prepared for the opportunities when they suddenly appeared, but we should have been. It was organized crime who was best prepared, and they responded rapidly to the void that was created. So we largely missed that window. Now, by way of contrast, while the Second World War was raging, there was a group of academics in America 
who were preparing for the defeat of Japan. How would they reform land ownership? What kind of education system would be best suited for the Japanese? How would they rebuild the country? They were prepared. And when Japan did surrender, they seized the window of opportunity and made changes that propelled Japan through its dramatic recovery. All of this is about seeing the end in the beginning. You are clear on your destination, but not on how you're going to get there. So you remain open to the possibilities and you seize them when they present. And of course, finally, and perhaps most important, you act. And in that action, you become a magnet attracting confirmations. Now today's episode was about translating vision into reality at a personal level. Before exploring how we do this collectively as communities, I wanted to first set the stage on the art of fashioning. I wanted to help emphasize how fashioning is a skill. We can develop and cultivate this virtue of fashioning, of bringing vision to fruition, transcending ourselves and our limitations. And just as we can do this as individuals, we can also do this as communities. So today's episode was about getting you ready for my next episode, which will explore how we engage in the same kind of fashioning at a collective level so that we can better situate what the Universal House of Justice's guidance to us, that we release the society building power of the faith in ever greater measures really means. So don't miss that episode of Society Builders, the second part of our conversation on the history of tomorrow. If you haven't done so already, make sure you follow or subscribe to the series, tell your friends about it, and join the conversation at our website at societybuilders.com. So thank you for joining the conversation about social transformation. We'll see you again next time on Society Builders. Society builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day. A united approach to building a new society. There's a crisis facing humanity. People suffer from a lack of unity. It's time for a better path to a new society. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. For social transformation, society builders. So engage with your local communities and explore the exciting possibilities. We can elevate the atmosphere in which we move. The paradigm is shifting, it's so very uplifting. It's a new beat, a new song, a brand new groove. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. But high faith has a lot to say Helping people discover a better way With discourse and social action Framed by unity Now the 
time has come to lift our game and apply the teachings of the greatest name and rise to meet the glory of our destiny. Join a conversation for social transformation, society builders. Join a conversation for social transformation, society builders.